Well, beginning in the late 1700s, the Underground Railroad formed a network of secret houses and pathways where African-American slaves were able to seek freedom from the South and go into the North and even parts of Canada where they would secretly travel. And it's estimated that around 100,000 slaves found freedom in the North, escaping bondage, torture, and forced labor. People risked their lives to find their way to these paths, being reminded of women like Eliza Harris, who, in hearing about her two-year-old daughter set to be sold off to another plantation to, to pay the debts of her owner, she decided to escape. She had had enough and went out in the middle of the winter, made her way to the Ohio River where she was unable to cross because there were giant ice blocks floating of what used to be a covered sea surface. So she hid in a house for three days and was awoken on the third morning where she could hear the dogs that were hunting her and the whistles of her plantation workers as they were seeking to find her and to bring her home. So she jetted out of her house holding her two-year-old and she just decided to start climbing on the blocks of ice and when she would sink down to waist deep, she would place her baby on the next block of ice to climb up and then to keep the process going until she reached the other side where someone who was working for the Underground Railroad was able to put her on her way. It's amazing what people will do in order to escape a tremendously harsh and cruel and wrong and illegal activity. And I bring up things like the Underground Railroad because in our minds, maybe 150 years later, we, we know instinctively that things like slavery in America were terrible things taking image bearers of God and torturing them to the point of economic liberty or just wreaking power over whoever we will. And in some ways, we may be too far removed from the exodus in our scriptures to not quickly enough be reminded that these were people who were running for their lives as they were following God's will for them to the promised land. These were not just carefree people who you took them out of a Super Bowl party in Egypt and they're finding their way to a new adventure in the promised land. But these are people who were going to die where they are and they would rather die on their way out than to remain. There are about 20 or so allusions to the Exodus in the Old Testament and an innumerable amount of parallels and allusions in the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew, for example, parallels the life of Jesus with the life of Moses in order to show who the real deliverer is because everyone knows who Moses was as the great deliverer. Bringing our attention, though, now to Exodus chapter 14, the event in this section of Scripture is is truly and nearly beyond comparison. Outside of Jesus' own life, most people rightly argue that the gravity and intensity and meaning of God delivering his people through the Red Sea is perhaps the greatest recorded event in all of history. So let me read to you the first 14 verses of chapter 14. Word of the Lord says this to us, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahira between Migdal and the sea. 
In front of Balzaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahira and in front of Baal-Saphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Well, here we see, firstly, uh, I think there are four giant exclamation points in our passage today. So chapters 14 through 15, there are four kind of phases or seasons or giant exclamation points that just stick out. And the first one that you would see is we will see Pharaoh's final humiliation. This will be the end of our account of this attacking tyrant who is seeking out the people of Israel. And this text exposes his problem that is facing him square in the eye. And in fact, as we read books like Exodus, we see that some of these main characters that seem so evil and tyrannical and sinful, if we look at them long enough, we actually notice that they look a lot like us. And so when we see Pharaoh's humiliation because of Pharaoh's problem, we'd be clear and careful to also look inwardly at us. And we see we have a problem that is similar to his. This text exposes a human problem, that the first being the just pure insanity of his own sin. This is a man who is going after Israel as if he hasn't had enough of what it means to go after Israel when you are on the opposite side of God. If if we just look at chapters before this, we see plague after plague after plague of the Lord just trashing Pharaoh before his eyes. And even before that, we see glimpses and little miracles, smaller miracles that the Lord did where, where where Pharaoh had some snakes and Moses had some snakes and Moses' snake ate Pharaoh's snake. And you would think that this would not be a person to be trifled with. But then there were plagues that built up in intensity. And even the firstborn of Pharaoh was taken away from him because of his sinful action. And yet here, 
clearly because of the hardness of his own heart and because of the Lord hardening his heart, but also just because when our hearts outside of the Lord do whatever they want, it becomes an insane view of sanity. He finally releases these people and then goes after them. But he doesn't just go after them. He sends his whole army after them. All of his personal chariots and all of the other chariots that have generals or people over them. Sin started so small and then grew into this life-altering recklessness before him. Remember how Pharaoh started on this path. He was a little paranoid that these slave people kept having more children. And now look at them. Sin starts so small, only to become a life-altering, reckless path before him. His intensity of sin's pursuit is increasing as well. He doesn't just use his personal chariots, but he uses the finest chariots that he has. Look at verse 6. It says, So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. The type of warfare that these chariots would be involved in are aimed at quickness and severe punishment because you could load all of your weapons up with you. So you don't need more people to come attack other people. You can fly across the desert and bring all of your arrows with you. This helps us see not only the terrain and geography of where the people of Israel are and and how Pharaoh is going after them, but, but behind all of this, we actually get a glimpse of what God is doing. Because just a chapter before, you would be normal to wonder if you look at a map of where the Lord is taking his people across the map you would go someone in that group is not very good at geography why are they going this way why is he bringing them up towards the sea if he knows that they're going to be hunted why are their backs facing the sea and their fronts are facing this army and here's what's happening behind the battle. God is luring his enemy in very, very tightly, and God was trapping Egypt into their own despair because it looks like Egypt has great control over their weapons, but God has ultimate control over all of his creation, and he will use it against those who are against him. Egypt was wanting to take advantage of Israel's poor traveling. Egypt was wanting to take advantage of the location that Israel was in. Egypt was wanting to take advantage of the timing that seemed to be against Israel. They were maybe running out of water, maybe running out of food. The the weaponry should have demolished Israel before Egypt's eyes. And the intelligence that this army had going before them was way too clever for for Israel to even put up a fight. But God was enticing an enemy into a place where no enemy could endure God's wrath. And when you connect the dots of where our sin places us before a holy God, things like this should make us tremble when we think about our own sin. Our weapons are not clever enough. Our timing is not good enough. Our position is not good enough when we are on the wrong side of the Lord. But another and... This is purely applicable lesson that we see from a text like this is oftentimes we are shown that joyful obedience is way better than selfish understanding. When you think about what may have been going through naturally the minds of these Israelites as they were following now this pillar of cloud and fire, 
which if I saw a pillar of cloud and fire, I might follow it too, but I may wonder why in the world am I going out this way? And I may have questions or maybe have complaints. You know, it's shining through the night. Can you turn it off a little bit? But here, God is calling his people towards joyful obedience rather than selfish understanding because our Lord had something greater in play than just Israel leaving Egypt. He was going to smash the enemies that are in his hands. God gave the Israelites a pillar of cloud and fire where he manifests himself to them and guides them by day and night. And we're shown again and again that we should be joyfully obedient wherever the Lord leads us. And oftentimes it's going to look incredibly different than, than the Egypt of which we live in. The way you raise your kids may be weird to other people. Follow the Lord's leadership. The way your marriage works or the may, way you work for your marriage to work may seem different than what you'll see on ABC or NBC. But it's worth it to joyfully obey the Lord than maybe to selfishly understand all that he is going to do because the more we read the Bible and the more we pray in accordance to God's will, we understand that whatever the Lord is up to, it's very, very good for us. And it was very, very good for Israel. So we see this human problem or this Pharaoh's problem, but we also see a divine solution within the first point. We see this divine solution where God is showing us an, ex, an exhibition of his glory. God's purpose should not be overlooked here where he is hardening Pharaoh's heart, but his purpose behind this was a continuation of what he's spoken about again and again and again in the scriptures. Things that he's brought up in chapter 6 or chapter 7 and in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 and in chapter 14 and 16 and 17. He wants the world to know his name and he's going to make it happen. Now, there are two reactions to when we know the Lord. One is a good and holy fear where you measure yourself up to him and his holiness and you feel oh so small and you do not want to face that righteous judge or that holy judge and you should be rightfully fearful of who the Lord is when you're on the opposing side of him. The Egyptian army should have come right up to that river, looked at what was going on, saw the cloud and fire and go, we're going to we're going to go back to tennis and we're going to do something else while you guys are here. But also another response and a righteous response to seeing and knowing the name of the Lord is to feel the comfort and protection under the Lord's grace. It's like an oasis in a desert place. Or it's like, it's like a kingdom that doesn't have any doors out where no one evil can come in because, because everything inside of it is good and graceful and righteous. God desires for all of us to know him this way where he wants us to know that he is the Lord and there's such great power behind that, whether in righteous fear and drawing your attention to him or for the rest of us in just righteous rest. His purpose behind this was for sinners to need and to understand their need for a savior. And for us today, he wants us to know his name and the knowledge and understanding of his son ultimately and truly being the redeemer for his people. Our text tells us that he wants the world through the Egyptians and through Israel to know that he is the Lord and he expresses this throughout Exodus. And so God's solution to man's problem was enticing evil in, conquering evil where it stands, and exhibiting his glory in delivering his people. But 
part of his solution was not just in conquering this enemy, but also at the same time encouraging his own people in the midst of fear and battle. Look at, look at Moses' words when people are calling out to him and wondering what's going on. And not only look at Moses' words, but also see, look how far Moses has come in this. Possibly years ago, he was an aging man who would have never sought the opportunity to lead anyone, much less God's people. He responded, though, in this case, to his people and God's people as the mediator who, of one with wisdom from the Lord, could speak to them with great courage. He was giving them the comfort of God's care. And I, I, love, I love how this was not just giving them a pep talk where you can do this and believe in yourself and it's going to be okay. But he said, fear not. Stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord or the deliverance of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Or he later on says, if you would stop whining and shush your mouth, you will see what the Lord will do. When you're done, there's going to be something incredible that's going to happen. Now his people were scared, terrified, fearing their own death and maybe even worse than dying. They being brought back as slaves again, trying to escape. But once again, they're finding out that they're being hunted. And so here Moses responds, encouraging God's people to have courage and to fear not. The most repeated phrase in the scriptures, to fear not. Now we aren't told that Moses knew the future. In his past, he may have been the first one in line to wonder what's going on or maybe even to Complain, but here stands this man firmly following the guidance of the Lord. And he tells them there in verse 14 that the Egyptians who are coming after them, all of their horses and all of their men, you will not see them tomorrow because the salvation of the Lord is at hand before them. Here we see what true courage looks like. Here we see what courage is exemplified to us on the part of Moses. I've personally found this to be such an encouraging picture as I think of my own life long term of what a courageous person looks like. You know, if you were to draw maybe features of Moses, whether you're young and you're drawing right now listening to the sermon or if you're old and you like to draw while you're listening to the sermon, we can see you. But if you were going to draw or measure out what Moses would look like, would he have giant arms? or a big head with a big brain, maybe long legs because he walks all over the place, or, or a, not just a staff, but a blinged out staff. Here we recognize that what makes Moses so, so courageous is that he has really good ears in listening to what the Lord says, and really good eyes in seeing what the Lord has done. And for you and I, growing in our courage, standing on the foundation of who God is, are we listening to what God is doing in our lives and in other people's lives? And are we seeing what he has done from beginning to end in the scriptures? Are we people who recognize to our own kids, if you want to grow up and be a really strong, courageous man or woman, you need to have giant ears and bugged out eyes. We would be much like Moses if we did. 
Within Moses' words, you see the appeal to respond to him towards godly obedience. But, but also the response is to know who God is, to recognize who he is in his character and what his character is. So when trouble is pinning you up against the banks of the sea or guiding you through walls of water, you know that you can trust every word of God's because you can trust God. And this, I think, is the highlight or the exclamation of Pharaoh's humiliation. Once a strong, spiritually savvy, global powerhouse is nothing when pitted up against the very words and ways of God Almighty. God's solution to this problem is himself. God is the solution to this problem. He will show his mercy to his beloved and conquering power against his enemies. This is Pharaoh's final humiliation. But also this epic story doesn't just have Pharaoh's humiliation, it also has God's achieved redemption. Look at verse 15 and I'll read through the remainder of the chapter. We see God's achieved redemption. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel And there was the cloud of darkness, and it lit up the sky, without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire, and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, None of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So let me briefly summarize what just happened by outlining for you the five scenes or phases because many of us, I'd imagine, have thoughts and images of what just happened based on um, 
Adventures of Odyssey or Superbook or Prince of Egypt. And I grew up on Superbook, so I need to do this for myself as well. But first, the wind blew all night while the pillars separated Israel from Egypt. And just before sunrise, the waters fully parted. Israel then begins crossing. And this fires Egypt up as they pursue them. Second, the pillar holding back Egypt pulled away. And the chariots and the mounted horses went into the sea on the seafloor. Now, just in this image right here, imagine what you must be thinking in this circumstance. You are being guided by this supernatural force into the desert. And then the Lord in his kindness blocks you off using the supernatural force where the enemies cannot pursue through it. And then all of a sudden, it's like the gates open. The fear that you would surely have going, it didn't work. The Lord's wall didn't work. Someone punched through or knew the code or something happened. And you know that there were people in the midst of the dry ground, looking around, seeing the walls around them, probably acting like I act every time I take off on a plane and land on a plane. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Yet we see the case where the Israelites' object of their faith was what was driving them forward, not the object of their surroundings. They were walking towards the Lord and his goodness. For he said, go forward. And they followed him in faith. So second, still in the second scene, the chariots and the mounted horses went into the sea. Verse 6 indicates that Pharaoh had his own team possibly with him and maybe sent others in first. These might have been like shock forces to really blow it up like a cavalry before a cavalry would go in. And then third, the Lord looks down on the Egyptians from this cloud fire. And this action threw them into confusion and panic commenced. When the enemies of the Lord recognize the power and the glory and the goodness of the Lord, it causes fine-tuned chariots to just go amok. And fine-tuned, precise soldiers to not have a clue of what they're doing anymore. They seem to be finally awakened when they noticed the sign of God's presence. And then fourth, in a panic, the Egyptians were a military mess, causing chaos, not for themselves, but all of their other fellow soldiers amongst them. And then fifth, God had Moses use his staff to now close the sea on the Egyptians. Water, which was culturally and normally a scary thing to everyone at this time, was now a pathway for salvation for the people of Israel and a route of destruction for the Egyptians. Death was now before all of the Egyptians' lives. And you would imagine as the Israelites, you would look back and you would go, I have no idea what happened, but everyone died behind us. Tim Chester, a a pastor and a commentator, has a commentary on this book, speaks a lot about death in his commentary of Exodus. Now you might look at this passage and rightly see death as a consequence of disobedience or death as the allowance of a just God against an unrighteous enemy, and that's all true, but death here is not just something that happens within this event, but is actually foreshadowing what is happening in the greater, grander story of the scriptures. Death is a beautiful foreshadow that we get a small taste of here, because to the Egyptians, 
Sin is what took them from their kingdom into the pit of the dry land of the sea where they were then swallowed up by the sea. And to the Israelites, they were taken from the Egyptians' kingdom, from a foreign kingdom where they were sojourners, into the pit of the dry land to their death, and yet they walked right through it to salvation on the other side. Now, how can this be? How can the same kind of people go into the sea and one group goes out dry and the other one drowns to death? This event is a foreshadow or a commentary on what life can be for those who place their trust in the Messiah. Deliverance through death or deliverance to death. Because it was the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who willingly left his kingdom on high, was delivered by the Father into the pit of death by religious rulers and authorities. But he didn't stay there, but was raised by God three days later. In his death, paid the price for what Israel needed to survive. And Jesus' death paid the price for what you and I need to have new life and life eternal. His death was the price that had to be paid and he died so that his followers are delivered through his own death and for their new life. And this action caused the people to fear the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God here wins complete victory and the Israelites witness the mighty outstretched arm of a loving, pursuant, powerful, almighty Savior. And so within this section, we we see two wonderful characteristics about God. The first one is that his power is precise. God shows in his deliverance of Israel precise power. It's time to get moving, and so here God commands once again this direct display of his precise power by telling Moses to lift up your staff and stretch out your hand. Now, why did he choose a staff? And why did he have Moses do it? Why couldn't God just do it? Well, doubters of our scriptures today are nothing new to us. Doubters of God's work have always been in the case. So you might just be tempted to think, well, it was a mighty windstorm that did this. Or it was actually a giant drought and there wasn't much water in the river anyway. So some people were really good about walking across. Or, or maybe, you know, there was some kind of weird eclipse where water just swept away. But God delivered his people by his own command. At God's command, the unnatural instinct of water to separate occurs where walls are now formed. The sea floor was dried. A frightening feature to this culture, water being judgment, is turned now into a pathway of peace. And what it must have been like for them to see God to do this before their very eyes. And what it must have felt like for them to recognize that it was for them that he was doing this. When you and I recognize and look at and reflect on Jesus' cross and resurrection, we, God wants us to see what he has done for us, and he wants us to feel through assurance what that means for us permanently in our lives. God's deliverance of his people, his achieved redemption, is precise and powerful. Water is on his command, and water either divides so that his people can go through or comes together 
for his enemies to be crushed. His gracious salvation comes with his concentrated and precise judgment that comes from his precise power. Second, we can see from this about God's um, characteristic is that he is a passionate protector of his own people. Look at verse 19. In verse 20, the episode of the pillar moving, one, you could reflect on that all day long. In chapter 13, God provides something holy and majestic from the heavens to lead the Israelites as they move on. But that's not all. This unimaginable force on display now moves behind the Israelites to protect them. And there's something special unveiled about God's love in this section where, where the pillar is spoken about now as an angel of God. And what D.K. Stewart, an Old Testament scholar, says, in these verses, God shows himself as the protector of his people through the pillar, not merely as a guide to them. That God should lead his people through the wilderness is very important, but that God should protect them from harm on the way reveals who he is for his people. Now, I was reflecting on the pillar of cloud and fire at lunch with Ryan and Drew a couple weeks ago, and I just couldn't get out of my mind, like, what does it look like? Like, surely there's Google images about it. And they were both like, don't concern yourself for what it looks like. Drew brought up the idea of the, the pillar going before you and now behind you. We see what that looks like when, when fathers really act like fathers. Sometimes a father needs to lead his family in for, front of them, kind of wrecking out the way or bushwhacking the way of how, where God is leading that family. And then oftentimes the father is behind, kind of scooping one up, hey, let's get together let's do this let's go and follow the lord in special ways i love youtube which means i watch videos of like gorillas and doing like human things and there was this one alpha gorilla who surprised this car by just walking in the middle of the road and when i mean like an off, like an alpha gorilla i mean one that looks like the size of a sound booth who just walks and he puts two fists on the ground and behind him, little gorillas start following, and they go to the other side of the road. And don't you know that everyone in that car is thinking, I'm good. I don't know what to do right now. <laughs> like, do I run away, or do I stand silent? I feel like you also have a weapon with you. When we think about God, it's quick to think of him in loving and kind ways, and those are true and good. But we must also see him as a passionate protector of his people. He's the one who gets in the road and says, you're not coming because my kids are walking behind him. He's the one who gets in front of his people and says, follow me to the promised land. He's the one who stands behind his people when their enemies are coming after them. And he says, I'm going to hold you off until I throw you into the sea. Now, a lot of us don't know people in our lives who would protect us the way that God shows how he protects his people and also promises how he protects his people. I was looking at statistics last night and just the idea of what many of you have gone through in real life physical abuse is awful and wrong and the Bible calls strictly ungodly. But on the flip side of that, in the testimony of God, there is one who you can place your full trust in the one who shelters you in a way that you haven't realized before. I read this morning where about 4.7 million people are physically abused by their partner every single year. 
That is not an image of the Lord, if that is you. That is not an image of a father who protects his people. When you need to be reminded of what it means to have God protect you, look to the Exodus, where he leads you and he shelters you and he brings you through the sea. So we see here God's deliverance, his redemption, his triumphant redemption, where we remember that the Egyptians were after God's people. The Egyptians were racing to catch and enslave God's people, but God made them stop, and then God threw them into their death. Truly triumphant. And so, of course, of course the next chapter is a large and glowing song for God's people to sing forever and ever. For 21 verses, all of the people, we would imagine in unison, start singing out these triumphant words, both about God and to God. Now, Ryan preached just these 21 verses December 2nd of last year, so a deeper dive into that, you would be good to go look that out because people disagree on you know, how you would break up that song or how you'd break up that that hymn, you know, are there three parts? Are there two parts? And I, I love what Ryan brought out and then also what Phil Riken brought out is that it is helpful to see it as a whole because when you see it as a whole, it emphasizes who God is and what God has done. What God has done is that he has commanded his creation to remove itself from his people. And then he cre- commanded his creation to lay waste to his enemies. And what this says about God is that he is powerful and that he is protecting and that he is loving and he is majestic and he's worthy of words and phrases and stanzas of songs to sing about him in all of his glory. And what I love about Exodus 14 is that it very clearly, or Exodus 15 is that it very clearly reflects back on Exodus. I messed up a lot of books there. What I love about Exodus 15 is that it reflects back so powerfully on Exodus 14, but it doesn't just stop there. It it shows this picture of redemption that keeps growing and growing and growing to where we can sing this song and go, that's who God is. That's what God's done. This song to us is like your university's alma mater or your school's fight song where whenever those trumpets or those trombones fire up, you just stand up and you start clapping and yelling and singing because whoever's on that side, we're about to crush you. And that's what Egypt did here. We're on the the east side of the river and everyone over there we're laughing at now and listen to our song that we'll sing about forever and ever. This is, this is echoed throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament psalms like Psalm 77 or even in Revelation 15. That's where it came from. Revelation 15, where people who are Christians who are oppressed and beaten and tormented are reminded through John about what it means to be on the east side of the Red Sea. They're the ones who are triumphant. And there will be a trumpet someday and the glory of it will never go off. Now, it becomes, it becomes easy to sing when you know the story, and even when you know your own story. Tim Keller, a retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, tells a story of when he sat and heard 
a theologian named Alec Medier and R.C. Sproul discussing the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament and how Christ is actually the center of those two pieces. And, and Alec said, think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan, having come out of the Red Sea and so forth. Think about what they would say if, if he were to approach someone and they might ask them, you know, who are you or what are you doing here? Or like we might ask each other, like, where are you from or what's your family like or how many kids do you have or what do you do? And he would say, I was a foreigner in land under the sentence of death, in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And our mediator led us out, and we crossed over, and now we're on our way to the promised land. Now, we're not there yet, but he's given us his law to make us a community, and he's given us the tabernacle because you have to live by grace and forgiveness, and his presence is in our midst, and he's going to stay with us until we get home. Alec later said that's exactly what every Christian should say about themselves, where we were once in a strange land in bondage, but placed ourselves under a slain lamb, a protector and a deliverer for our sins. And even though we're not home yet, his presence is with us and he longs for us to be with him. The story of the Christian's deliverance is seen and appreciated so heavenly within the Exodus story, out of bondage, freedom, once oppressed by sin, now in the hands of a redeeming, loving Savior. And so they sing and they sing loud and they sing well. But the moment of national celebration would soon fade in the memories of the Israelites. They would soon fall from this peak and now hit another valley. After this time of celebration, Moses led the Israelites under God's command away from the banks of the sea, where now we reach our fourth and final point, where they go into the desert of Shur, where they encounter something that causes them to stumble not reading that section, but starting in verse 22 and through verse 27, Israel was back in the harshness of the desert. Water was tough to find, and they were getting thirsty, as humans do. They were getting really thirsty, and it took them three days to find this, and also three days to forget about God's faithfulness to, the, to them at the Red Sea. They arrived at a place called Merah, where they actually found water, but this water was bitter and undrinkable to them. So the people lodged their formal complaint with Moses, and so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Moses responded rightly by seeking the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood and instructed him to throw it into the water. And Moses obeyed, and the water turned from bitter-tasting water to now sweet and drinkable water. After that, they then arrived somewhere else, where they found fresh, drinkable water. Now, this passage shows us one, a couple of things. This, this section of chapter 14 and 15, it might be confusing to think, man, 14 was the most epic battle I've ever seen in my life. And then three days later, they're thirsty and they're like, I don't want tap water, I want sparkling water. We're Israel for crying out loud. I think what this passage brings up is it shows a continual need for, for a gospel redirection or it shows a continual need of a God-centered rudder. Not three days later, though let's not downplay their desire for thirst, not three days later they turned from worshipers to whiners. 
So it shows a continual need for a gospel-centered rudder. It also shows a continual provision of God's grace, love, and mercy. God here again shows himself as very good, as very gracious. And it's not just a one-time gift that he pours out. Now, if you and I, let's just be real, parted the waters for our friends and drug them through on dry land, delivering them forever from their Egyptian enemies. And then three days later, they're like, hey, I'm kind of thirsty and I don't really like what you have to offer. You would probably say, if I was your mom, I'd say, go to your room right now. Like, what's wrong with you? But God is more gracious and loving than we could ever be and that he gives them water that doesn't taste bitter or gets them along their way, but water that is sweet to the lips and quenches their thirst. It shows the continual provision of God's grace, love, and mercy. God is loving in gigantic ways of his provision of salvation and delivering his people from bondage to new life, but he, but he also gives them sweet water to drink so that on their journey home, they're reminded of the big and the small graces of God. And lastly, it shows the tasting sense of the gospel. Not bitter, not even plain, but sweet. Revelation chapter 10, verse 9 says, So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said, And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. For the little book. Out of, so he took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth, he said, it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, it made my stomach bitter. We're also reminded of Psalm 119, of what even the Lord's words mean to us. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The longing soul of a provisional God is sweet to the mouth. So here we see the people of God be graciously reminded of the Lord's grace provided for by his kind miracles and are given yet another taste of his sweetness and goodness. And they'll need it again and again and again and again, but he's faithful to give bountifully to those who he loves so deeply. So to conclude, in the intro, I mentioned that there were over 20 illusions or times where the Exodus was accounted for in the Old Testament. And innumerable times is the Exodus accounted for in the New Testament through direct links or illusions. But what you must see in order, I think, to appreciate this text as a whole is that it's more than a story that is accounted for, but it is actually a story that is connected by our God to show us the trueness and glory of Jesus Christ. The Exodus is but a glorious foretaste of the effect of the cross. So remember how Jesus is spoken about. He's spoken about through the lenses of the Exodus. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, verse 15, Matthew speaks of Jesus using language from Hosea 11. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And in Hosea, the son was referring to Israel being literally called out of Egypt. And Matthew, and in this case, Jesus, through the lenses of Hosea, through the lens of Exodus, isn't just a great deliverer, but Jesus himself is the deliverer for God's people by his death and resurrection. He directly, Matthew directly connects Jesus' work, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return as the triumphant meta-Exodus for God's people to see Jesus as. Or even in Luke 9, where Jesus is talking amongst Moses and Elijah. 
I'll say that again because it's, it's so confusing to many people. Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament at the transfiguration where they are speaking to him and talking about, speaking to Jesus and talking about his departure that will soon happen in Jerusalem. And the word that's used in English is departure and the word that's used in the Greek is his exodus. Luke describes what he saw as Jesus being spoken to from the representative of the law and the representative of the prophets as the deliverer of God's people. Later on in the New Testament, Hebrews 3 and 4, so clearly describe Moses as the one who uniquely points the readers to Jesus himself. And Jesus is the greater Moses. By faith, the author of Hebrews says, the Israelites went through the sea on the dry land, and it's by faith that we, you and I, are brought from our previous kingdom to Jesus. And lastly for you, before I close, a vivid portrayal is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul speaks of the Israelites as having passed through the cloud and sea, and he says that they were baptized into Moses. So in the same way, using the baptism into Moses as a metaphor, we need to be baptized into Christ. Paul records this for us, so that we will learn from their mistakes and that so we will long for the rest that we have within Jesus. And I really think that's the application of this whole glorious event. This epic saga of people who were in this strange land find refuge under the guidance and in the hands of a delivering, sweetening Savior. May it be so for all of you. May we find ourselves as people who walk through life like they were walking through the sea with our eyes on the deliverer, knowing that he has delivered us by the death and resurrection of his very son and knowing that we can trust in him forever. May we know him and may we be known by him because we were delivered from enslavement to the eternal rest that he provides. This story is the greatest story outside of Christ's life. Because Christ's life is the greatest story, and even in that, we see how God gloriously triumphs over sin for his people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning humbled. Humbled that you had your people in mind when you were preserving them and protecting them, and also humbled that you have us believers in you in mind when this all occurred too. We're amazed at your power. We are fearful, rightly, of your glory, and we are in awe of your ways. Father, keep us attuned to your gospel so that we keep walking forward to our home, knowing that with you we have true rest. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.